Hey everyone, I just spoke to Elena Simpal, who's a professor of computer science at King's College London. We spoke a bit about her life and career, but we actually ended up spending a lot of time talking about AI and society. So this episode is a little bit different to the usual structure. But I hope you enjoy, and if you do, please share it around and subscribe if you haven't already. Thanks a lot. When were you first exposed, and when did you first become interested in computer programming? I suppose it was um, when I was a teenager. Um, I used to be um, a mathematician um, in school, and um, as I was, um, I was brought up in Eastern Europe, uh, where we used to have a very strong school of mathematics and natural sciences and so you see I was competing in maths uh, there used to, I think they used to be called Olympiads at various levels my whole life basically since I was nine years old and then as I was approaching the the end of, of, of high school I started thinking I need a change I was looking for uh, to move away from from pure maths to something more applied um, and um, anything related to, to computation seemed like one possible option um, to do what I thought would be more applied maths. Um, I was also looking at economics back then. Um, Say so, um, a very good friend of the family said, well, with your background in mathematics, I think you should do computer science because this is going to be the future and computers are going to take over the world and AI is going to take over the world. So then slowly I started learning more and more about programming and about computational thinking and eventually I did a computer science degree. So quite late actually and, and more as a, as a sidetrack to my maths career rather than anything else. Okay, so it was kind of mathematics that led you there, but did you have any kind of interest in technology at all generally? Were you interested in, did I you read science fiction when you were younger or anything like this? To some degree, to some degree. They, to be honest, having um, studied computer science and having taught on computer science degree, I find the link to science fiction a bit problematic. I think it is quite reductional in many ways, and I think Part of the problems that we have with diversity in computer science degrees and computer science graduates is due to this link that people make uh, or association that people make with what we see in movies, how IT specialists are, are, are depicted um, and the sort of stereotypes that these sort of uh, media images continue to propagate and the link to science fiction. Having said that, I did actually read quite a bit of science fiction when I was, um, when I was young uh, and I moved away from it um, because very soon, already during my degree, uh, my undergrad degree, I started realizing that the hardest thing in computer science is not the maths that I was doing, um, and I used to be quite good at it, not so much right now, but actually the hardest thing in computer science is the people. And that moved me very far away from, from um, the usual things that you associate with, 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 with computer hardware and even the maths behind it, more and more into an appreciation of, of social sciences and um, 
and economics again, potentially, and, and human-computer interaction. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean that the most difficult challenge was the people in that community? Um, yeah, I think um, a, a variety of things really, but ultimately that every piece of technology that we are creating um, is meant to solve a real-world problem, someone's problem. And this could be um, an individual, or it could be a group of people, or it could be a professional category. Um, and and also related to that, um, everything that we create in computer science, every piece of software, every algorithm, every data set, every website is created by people as well. Um, and the, the, the background and the motivation and the skills of those people have a direct impact on the product. And both of these aspects, I think, um, are are starting to, to to receive more and more attention, especially in the context of artificial intelligence, where there is this understanding that the software itself is so powerful um, that um, people and the media are starting asking questions about who creates this, right? And the software itself starts to create new things, and there is a question of ownership and a question of accountability and. And you said that you think science fiction maybe leads to a slightly problematic kind of few issues there and stuff. Can you give some examples of how you think science fiction has maybe inspired people pursuing maybe wrong? I, I'm not saying wrong, I'm just saying that it leads to certain people or certain groups feeling more or less directly related to computational thinking and computer science mm -hmm. as, a, as, a, as a discipline. So what I'm trying to say is that if you don't like science fiction, don't worry, come and study computer science. Because there's much more in computer science than Black Mirror. Yes, there's a lot of that. And to some degree, part of the systems that we are thinking about, the solutions, the experiences that, that, that we have at the moment have been defined, described, envisioned in some form in science fiction in the 50s, right? And maybe those were the only frameworks of references we, we had and, and human imagination couldn't, wouldn't get further than what those books were describing. But my message is if you don't like science fiction, you will still find something in computer science for you. Mm -hmm. Are there anything in typical science fiction films that haven't come around yet? that you would hope will come around? I don't know, to be honest. Um, I don't think, going back to what I was saying about how important people are in, in, in computing, I think our focus is perhaps too much on one hand on, on interfaces and how those systems would look like and what they would do. And, and to some degree, some of that functionality is already available right now. I think um, the big questions that we're grappling with around um, the ethics of the technology and the societal implications. Um, science fiction literature did allude to some of these um, uh, big questions and, 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 and challenges and we're still trying to, to, to approach them right now. I think the difference is perhaps that, um, I mean, if you, if you look around the world at the sort of surveillance systems that have been put in place also in the last two years, you do start wondering how far we are, maybe we are beyond some of the societies, dystopian societies that, that you see that, that we've been caught in the science fiction books. Uh, but at the same time, I think there's also um, 
positive change um, because we do have access to this sort of digital experience much more than before. There is an increased awareness that we need to study the implications of these technologies um, across disciplines, not just um, among computer scientists. Um, and there's also an increasing amount of, of, of interest from, um, from policymakers and the civil society around, around what it actually means to live in a world where the digital is so present and so important. Mm -hmm. Could you give any examples of places around the world that maybe have started using technologies, like you said a minute ago, that you could maybe think of as actually dystopian? Well, I mean, to some degree, we see that pretty much everywhere. Um, and without naming any countries, we've seen an increase use of surveillance of different types in responses to the pandemic. So I think that's, that's one example that has just shown in this very special, perhaps emergency context, how quickly um, companies but also the public sector can go in collecting data about individuals and, and, and using it in, to, to, to Define policies that are sometimes restrictive to the to the individual. So, when you were learning to program, or maybe starting to master it, were you excited by what were some um, things that you that excited you that you thought you know that should be good practical applications of technology for the, for society? To be honest, I mean, when I was studying, I didn't really think much about that. Uh, when I was studying, I was more fascinated about the the. the beauty of of programming as a concept and and especially with my maths background it was just fascinating to learn about the most basic things about how a computer is built and how an operating system works and different level of abstractions and different types of programming and what it means and how you get from something written in this specialized way, those instructions written in a specialized way to a piece of code that the machine can execute and then and then uh, produce an, an, an actual result, um, all the way to um, how people perceive those results and how different people code in different ways and what that means. So I think um, those were those were my my um, initial feelings about about the subject and I've learned about practical implications much later actually when I was um, when I started doing my PhD um, because I was um, working on a on a, a project um, that had direct applications to um, uh, medicine so we were working with um, healthcare specialists who were were building actually a, what you would call today a multi-model architecture, AI architecture, to um, be able to provide diagnostic support to, um, I think, radiologists, if I remember correctly. What was it about program that, that you found, that I guess, still find beautiful? Mm. Um, in many ways, um, just the same sort of things that I used to like in mathematics, that you have these very abstract principles, I don't know, something as as, as simple as recursion, for instance, so the ability of a program to uh, call itself and 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 um, do very powerful things in with with just a few instructions, um, or 
um, different types of, of, um, of data structures, so ways to manage input data at scale in a way that um, allows you to, to, to compute something to, to produce a result in, in, in an efficient time. Um, so those sort of principles that apply almost universally, really. Um, or something like, like I don't know, the, 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 the concept of a Turing machine, for instance, or a Turing complete program. So those are things that are so universal um, and apply in, in, in across computer science. And if you think beyond those principles, just like it is with, with, with mathematics, you, you, in theory, realize some very powerful computational systems that have huge challenges that you could spend your life um, trying to trying to, to answer and to some degree the community has made progress in, 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 in those areas uh, but in many ways the challenges still remain. In terms of the problems within the, the kind of people within the computer science community is one of them that we don't have enough people mm-hmm. in the society who can program? Do we mm-hmm. need more people to learn coding? I think it Depends. Uh, well, I would say yes, but at the same time, we also need people who are able to um, think more holistically. So there are issues that you cannot solve with coding. Um, there is no piece of, in an organization, there is no piece of technology or AI that is going to cut down on red tape. This, this is a problem that you're addressing, then you need to do much more then have some coders on the team who can program a Power BI dashboard. Um, say, say, at the same time, yes, I think some coding skills are helpful to anyone, really, just like a bit of Excel is helpful to, 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 to everyone. And there is a rise, I mean, there's, there's a rise in, in um, um, these, um, what we call high-level programming languages that allow people to write simple programs, um, perhaps a level of abstraction um, higher than, say, um, features in, in, in Microsoft Excel, um, to be able to work with data in their daily lives, ultimately, without having to actually do any sort of computer science degree. I think it's just a matter of literacy, ultimately, um, but I don't think everyone should be a coder. We do need more people because organizations become more and more digital, because they use more and more data in their in their decisions, and because the data is now not just an Excel spreadsheet, but actually a bit more varied and a bit larger than that, perhaps. So if you want to um, implement this sort of digital evidence-based decision-making at, at a bigger scale in any organization, um, then you do need more people with some coding skills. Mm. What about other professions? Do we need more people working in policy or more philosophers thinking about ethical issues? Um, possibly. I mean, philosophers should definitely be involved in that. Um, but it's a much broader conversation. I think. I think we need to understand the sort of policies that that, that need to be made. Um, there has to be a broader consultation that takes into account voices um, as from diverse backgrounds. Uh, there has to be um, also a better ability at, at, at 
policy level to uh, keep pace with the well actually to, to, to just manage the, the pace of change of the technology um, and at the moment there is a bit of a gap there as we know right the technology is changing very very quickly um, and the way policy comes about follows a slightly different um, time scale right say um, and then there's also I suppose the whole question around how powerful some of these um, IT companies are right and, and how much they are de facto setting policy maybe not the letter of the law but ultimately when the beginning of the pandemic you have uh, a handful of companies holding more data about what is going on than governments or if they decide what is to be censored and what not whether we like their decision or not it's still a set of people unelected with a lot of power and and that doesn't feel right and i'm not speaking as a computer scientist i'm speaking just as a, as a let's just say an informed citizen um when i when i look at that so yes we do need more yeah, this is what i was trying to say earlier when i was saying that i don't think yes i think people should program more but i don't think um just having lots of programmers will solve the issue. I think we would need also to have programmers from more diverse backgrounds. And ultimately, um, everyone should use whatever programming tools and should be able to use whatever programming tools they need. So we'll just bring it back to you again and your, your story. <laughs> so yes, you okay. Did, you did the um, you did a PhD at the Free University of Berlin. Yes. What research did you do as part of that? Well, so um, I think I, I, I mentioned briefly that I was I was working in a in a research project um, in in medicine, and um, my role was to build um, a knowledge base, which is a um, is a basically is a lot of data about a particular domain, and that domain was medicine in this case, um, and that data is structured in a way that allows an AI, in this case it was a machine learning algorithm, to um, um, have some understanding of the domain in question. And I think if I remember correctly, we were looking at images um, that were, um, I think, a collection of, of images used by pathologists. So they were showing cells um, um, that pathologists look at uh, using microscope. Um, to understand, uh, to, to um, basically reach a conclusion about a, a, a diagnostic conclusion. And, and we were trying to um, classify those images using just image features, visual features alone, or using um, reports, for instance, that uh, medics were writing. Um, so this was 2004, I think. Um, so it was way before this new wave of artificial intelligence that we're experiencing right now, where we have way more data and lots of data sets and, and, and machine learning capabilities that you could use out of the box. Back then, we built this knowledge base from, from, from scratch, um, or um, we, we tried to reuse some of these, some existing taxonomies and classification systems um, from, 
from other researchers. So as part of the as part of the thesis, what I realized was that there is a huge difference between the theory of building these knowledge bases and, 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 and the practice of it. And um, the the specific area I was looking at was was how one could reuse existing knowledge bases because they are very complex to build. Um, so back in the day um, this involved quite a bit of manual effort, perhaps a bit more than, than right now when the technology is much more powerful. Um, at the same time there was an, impl an implicit assumption or a recommendation as a researcher when you build a knowledge base like this to try to structure it in a way that is compatible with other knowledge bases so that you can integrate them and people don't have to rebuild and, uh, and, and, and curate the same sort of knowledge over and over again um, in each project. But at the same time when I was looking at someone else's knowledge base I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand what it was built for. I sort of um, realized that there were actually a number, a handful of, of use cases and usages for these knowledge bases. And if you factor that in, the structure and the, the, the characteristics of these knowledge bases would be very different. And if you take one that was built for one use case and, and one for, for a slightly different one, you couldn't just put them together. Um, so I started thinking about the sort of guidance you would give to someone like me when they build a knowledge base like this again um, to try to factor in these cases and, and when they see another resource online to try to first understand for what purposes it was built and adjust it so it would be truly compatible to, to, to the project at hand. So, so it was that, that sort of um, concern about practical application and guidance to knowledge engineers, this is what I used to be as a, as a PhD student, this was my area of uh, specialism. So what sort of guidance could you give to knowledge engineers to allow them to actually build useful systems in, 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 in practice? And that's what, I, that's what I wrote about in the PhD. So it was a collection of, of case studies um, and, and, and practical recommendations. I've read online that your research these days is kind of on the intersection between AI and crowd or social computing. Mm -hmm. Can you explain yes. what this intersection yeah, is? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so this is very much, um, this is very much a, a continuation of what I've started to do back then, right? So, um, so, so in my PhD, um, I basically said, look, unless you document these knowledge bases. So a knowledge base is a piece of AI technology. This is when you say intersection of AI and, and, and social computing. The AI for me, at least by training, was, was this area of, of knowledge bases, um, which you see at work, for instance, when you search on Google, right? So when you search on Google for something like, um, I don't know, Bush House, um, you will get lots of documents about Bush House, but you will also get Typically on the right hand side of the page, you'll get some very specific information about Bush House. So say the search algorithm knows that Bush House is probably a building rather than the house of Mr. Bush. And it also knows three, four specific things about buildings, like opening times and address and a few other things, right? And now if you look for a very different concept, like um, I don't know, Chelsea Football Club. Uh, you will get very different types of attributes, right? So, and that knowledge that football clubs are different than buildings um, 
is part of Google's knowledge base, which they've created over the last 10 years, right? So, so in my PhD, I basically said, well, building these knowledge bases used to be, still is, um, quite costly. Um, lots of them are available online. In theory, they could be reused, but actually, practically, they can't be reused because there's lots of assumptions about their intended use that engineers make when they build them. And without that information, I won't be able to just take it and plug it in to a new system. Um, after that, I've done another piece of research with, with colleagues in Germany um, about how much does it actually cost to build these large knowledge bases. Um, because there used to be this assumption that, well, if you just distribute the effort, then lots of people are going to contribute a little bit and ultimately this is going to grow really, really quickly, like you see on Wikipedia. The result is great. The scale is amazing because you have lots of people contributing at the same time independently. Still, a project like Wikipedia is perhaps um, easy to set up in a certain context at a certain time. If I come and ask the world to build a knowledge base, how do I engage with those people? How do I make sure that I, how do I replicate the success of Wikipedia to any given knowledge base, my medicine knowledge base that I have to build in my project? Um, so, so that assumption that you would just decentralize things and be able to reuse bits and pieces from somewhere else and, and ultimately you would be able to build these sort of knowledge bases quite easily uh, in a sort of a modular way didn't quite work in practice and I started looking at how much it actually costs organizations to build these sort of knowledge bases and, and, and looked into um, uh, models from economics and, and, and from software engineering as well that have tried to estimate how much time does it take to, 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 to write a piece of code? Um, and then how did I get to social computing? Well, so yes, one way to, to create knowledge bases uh, at scale is to involve lots of people. So you can have a small group of people and they will take 20 years like they did for one of the most well-known knowledge representation projects in AI, which is called Psych, decades. Right? Or you could say, well, what if I'm able to use the input and contributions and resources of 100,000 people, assuming I can reach them and motivate them and so on. Um, now, when you have 100,000 people who all contribute a little bit, one fact of knowledge to, to your knowledge base, like they do in, in a project called Wikidata, which is the knowledge base of the uh, behind Wikipedia and many other projects. So if you manage to do that, then you have all sorts of other interesting challenges. So among these 100,000 people, um, some of them will be more or less knowledgeable about what knowledge bases actually are. Others will just be interested in writing one small fact about, um, I don't know, the village they grew up in and that they know very well, right? Um, how do you, from all these different inputs, how do you actually aggregate everything, make sure it is still correct, despite the fact that some people um, are more or less experts and more or less motivated and perhaps bored or tired or um, um, are, are, are 
contributing to this knowledge base in their free time on their mobile phone. So how do you make sure that from all these inputs, you aggregate something that you can credibly use in applications, for instance, uh, in, in the virtual assistant. So when you ask Alexa, what is the capital of, um, <coughs> I don't know, Romania, they would be able to say, to tell you it's Bucharest and not Budapest. Despite the fact that actually this answer has been compiled by crowdsourcing the question to many, many different people we don't know anything about. And that's the social computing part. So how do you actually look at large groups of people and their contributions to something like a knowledge base or any other sort of online project like OpenStreetMaps and Zooniverse and many others? How do you use computational methods to validate the answers and aggregate them into something that is actually just as good as a professional product, OpenStreetMap versus Google Maps and, and Wikipedia or Wikidata versus something like a classical encyclopedia and so on and so forth. And for that, then you need to um, use algorithms and to look. So if, if you ask someone a question about what is the capital of Romania and you get 20 answers, how do you computationally infer which is the one that is mostly most likely to be correct, right? You could look at the distribution of the answers. You say, well, uh, out of these 20 people, 17 said it's Bucharest, so it's probably correct. But then there's other types of questions where the so-called wisdom of the crowds doesn't work in the same way, right? And you have lots of people who just don't know. The question is phrased in a certain way or, or, or it requires a certain type of knowledge. Um, so, so that distribution of answers is not the best indicator for what the correct answer is. So those sort of computational methods allow you to take all these different types of inputs you have from people and, and aggregate them into some sort of truth, ultimately a, a digital resource that you can use in uh, an AI system or in any other type of, of, of computational program. Um, the other thing that I do is I look at how the composition of this crowd has an impact on on the ultimate on the the, the end product. So, um, for instance, if twenty people contribute to the same digital artifact, how diverse should they be in terms of interests and? Um, amount of time they've contributed to the project and, and, and backgrounds and motivation to have a greater chance to have information that is more representative for a larger group of people. And then when you look at, at, at the social fabric of the people who contribute to, to, to these large online projects, you see all sorts of interesting patterns and some of them could be encouraged but others should perhaps be kept under close observation to make sure that we don't introduce any sort of biases we don't want and that's part of what social computing does as well what do you think about where we're at with diversity and representation in ai uh, do you mean in the in the field as such or in in applications yeah within the data itself maybe maybe both maybe you tackle mm -hmm. one more each one at a time <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think in terms of um in terms of um systems that use ai um 
I think we're in a better position now than we were perhaps five or ten years ago. Um, but at the same time, AI is used so much more widely. Going back to the surveillance systems I was mentioning um, earlier, that um, I have the feeling that lots of the conversations we had around ethics and societal implications are lived in different ways in different parts of the world. Um, and that starts with um, our approach to, to privacy and data protection and how personal data is used and that continues to the degree to which um, companies or organizations more generally have access to the data that you need to be able to create powerful AI models to use internally um, all the way to <coughs> how um, how we do research for instance say um, there's <laughs> if you do research in AI today you need access to substantial computational infrastructure uh, much more than than used to be the case in in, in other fields including in AI a decade ago um, so that tells you something about the sort of investment that one needs about um, the level of access that certain countries or certain institutions have and then if you think about how important AI is supposed to become across disciplines how do you ensure that um, there is a certain level of access to computational infrastructure to, to as many people as possible, as many researchers as possible, uh, for them to be able to do competitive research. Um, I think that's that's an issue that is that people become aware of, but we haven't really found found a solution. I think governments will basically need to invest massively to make sure that public sector research does have this access because otherwise <coughs> most of the cutting-edge research and technology will be available only to a handful of, of, of corporate entities. And I have nothing against corporate research but I think there has to be a level playing field as well um, and, and there should be a critical mass of, of, of public sector institutions that should be able to be competitive um, in this space as well. Are you optimistic about where it's going or do you feel more worried than... No, I mean I'm not more worried than usual I would say. I think there's... Um, I like the fact that um, there is a much bigger conversation going on about the implications of using technology than it used to be. I, I, I think that's a, a, a great development. Um, it is a very complex, rapidly evolving space. I don't think it's something that, that we will be able to solve from one day to another. Certainly not when we're moving from one crisis to, 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 to the other as we, we seem to be doing. But um, 
I am. I think it's good to have this conversation. I think the only thing that uh, that that we can do is to continue to 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 have it. Um, there's. I think there's also some interesting trends in computer science around sharing research insights more openly, which is which is very very positive. Why do you think that this this um this increase in the awareness, you know, regarding social and moral issues around technology has kind of really risen up over the last few years. Where does that come from? I, I don't know. I think it's mainly because I don't know, I couldn't tell. Um, but I do have the feeling that as some of this technology has become pervasive. Um, people and the media have started to pay attention. Um, so um, we're talking about AI algorithms. Um, well, yesterday I was watching a Netflix documentary about Andy Warhol. So <laughs> the diaries of Andy Warhol and the voice of Andy was created by an AI, by a generative program that was trained on probably recordings, past recordings. Um, Say so that level of, of technology adoption and the sort of reach that um, that technology has is is immense compared to maybe 15 years ago when this was still for many the subject of science fiction books. So when you are watching Netflix documentaries where someone's voice has been recreated using an AI to a very convincing standard from as far as I, I, I could tell, I mean, I'm not very familiar with all the nuances of Andy Warhol's voice um, and, and the um, estate that is managing the legacy of the artist has given permission for this. So, um, this is basically, it sounds like AI is everywhere. And with that, there's perhaps also an increased awareness of um, positive uses of AI and, 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 and negative ones. Almost and that's, I think, yeah, that, that's, I think, the reason why we're talking much more about it. At the same time, I also think that there is a like with everything, when there is a conversation in the public sphere about something that is fairly specialized, there's also lots of myths and lots of um, conversations that um, aren't perhaps as, as productive as they could be. Um, so I think we as computer scientists need, need a much stronger training in anything related to the social implications, societal implications, environmental implications of, of um, AI and any of these very powerful technologies that we're working with. Um, we're starting to do this. We're definitely um, um, covering this in the degrees here. Um, but I think also for my generation, we haven't had that training. Um, and we should do more of it and we should train our PhD students as well and 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 at the same time um, one should do the same at, at the corporate level I think I mean I've seen some very good examples of best practices of how this is this is done um, 
and there is a certain level of you know process and, and, and framework that you can introduce to manage risks but I think it should be more than that I think it should be something that that um, we should live by um, I mean we all know how to use certain powerful tools like I don't know cars or weapons um, AI is can be used in various ways and we should be as responsible and as cautious in using it as as any other of these um, other technologies from the last 100, 150 years. You mentioned a minute ago about some of the typical myths um, mm. around AI. What are ones that you seem to that you think kind of typically pop up in the news a lot? Can you give us some examples? So, I mean, um, there's. I think there's a whole conversation around. Oh, look what the AI has done, right? Um, which is which is interesting. Like, look at this painting. Uh, look how powerful this is um, and I've built this system that is doing this um, without actually wondering what the system is for and by that I don't mean necessarily the question of what could someone use this system for if they would want to cause harm that's a very important conversation um, as well I, I'm just sometimes wonder about just the intended real world problem that something is trying to solve rather than just show that it is possible it is feasible um, so on this in this um, whole question around creativity and ai right so here's a piece of beethoven like music that the AI has composed and now let's ask people whether they can distinguish between the real Beethoven and the AI Beethoven. Conclusion, robots are coming and are going to kill us, right? Um, yes, maybe, but between that and so first of all, why did you do it? Well, I've tried to show it is feasible people many times can't tell the difference okay fair enough now what yeah so do i have to do this for every other type of composer or genre of music is it really worth the computational cycles as we call them or the environmental footprint of training and retraining and using all that all those um, um, computers in the data centers just to find this out in some cases yes in some cases maybe not <laughs> um what what do these technologies actually help with and if we're not careful about solving actual problems um we might end up in a situation where in the world like we live today people will be asking well you researchers <laughs> what are you actually contributing to society yes you are teaching students fine um, but what else your research what is it actually motivated by and I think that's that's an important conversation to have and to keep in mind in a field that is developing as rapidly as as, as, as AI there is a lot to be said about curiosity driven research but I have the feeling that 
AI is so hyped that we see it used in all sorts of scenarios without actually providing the scaffolding for or, or the, the narrative um, about the implications, positive and negative alike. We could ask you about the specific example then, because in the news in the last couple of weeks, there's been this one AI system that has been all the rave from OpenAI, mm. Dali 2, which OpenAI say can create original and realistic images and art from a text description. I've had a look at some of those images that have been generated and they at least seem pretty beautiful and pretty mm -hmm. amazing, um, some quite cool things. So mm -hmm. what would you make of, of that kind of system? Example? I mean, that's a perfect example, right? I mean, uh, fine, impressive. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of marketing around systems like this. Um, I think if a company wants to invest their resources in, in, in a system like this, um, if they have a very good understanding of what a technology like this could be used for in a positive and a negative sense, then 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 why not? Um, but from that to just from that announcement uh, to draw any conclusions about AI taking over the world, or on the contrary, AI just being um, um, completely insignificant compared to, I don't know, the level of knowledge or learning of a two-year-old child. So any, any of these extremes, I think, I think are, aren't very useful in the, in the conversation. I think, for me, the important thing is, speaking as a researcher, is that, on the one hand, we have access to some degree to some of these very powerful systems, like the OpenAI ones, um, at the same time, many research institutions can't keep up anymore. So if we would want to, um, say, a medium-sized institution in the global south or, or even in the UK, if we're thinking about setting up a team and the computational infrastructure it takes to even start building something a few orders of magnitude lower than that sort of system, take quite a bit of time. And that's, I think, what's problematic. Um, also, I think because of the complexity of these systems, using them should be done with extreme cautious, caution because um, they could hurt people. I mean, maybe not in this particular example where given a sentence, you generate an image, um, but, but why not, right? I mean, if you, um, even if you think about um, marketing or social media or the use of, of um, tagging um, or automatically generated imagery and, and, and media more generally. Um, we need to have better accountability of the systems and need to be able to um, fix these systems if we notice that they are not working in the in, in right way and for closed systems like the open AI ones um, that's that's not easy that's not an easy thing to do so if someone wanted to get into computer science or technology and actually you know, work on something that's genuinely sociable socially mm. valuable mm. What, what advice would you give them um, I think um, and as I was saying earlier I think we're 
in a much better position now than we used to be five or ten years ago in, 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 in this respect. I think lots of degrees now do include these sort of questions as well as part of the curriculum. Um, and I see the, this actually in when when working with, with students, there is a greater interest in, in working in areas that, that make a difference, um, especially related to climate change, um, healthcare, um, government, um, which I think is a, is a very positive um, development. I think um, in the future, there is a trend to become more socially, societally, environmentally aware on technical degrees as well. Um, and I hope this trend will continue. So, so I think this will happen more or less automatically when you study computer science um, or artificial intelligence here or, or pretty much anywhere else in the UK. Um, but I think it's I think it's it's interesting when when deciding whether to study computer science or not to think about the fact that um, computational technology is now has now applications pretty much anywhere. Um, Say so if there is a particular area or domain that someone's interested in, almost certainly there will be applications and there will be specific challenges, computational challenges, that they will be able to, to pursue if they're interested. Elena, thanks so much for speaking. It was great to hear a bit about your story, but also get some, um, so much into the stuff about AI. So mm. thanks a lot for talking. Okay. No I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you enjoyed the Human Podcast, please consider subscribing. I hope to see you soon.